Happy 2020! Happy 2020! <laughs> and welcome to... <laughs> we may have had too much time off. Hello and welcome to Season 2 of Interior Voices, an interior health podcast series where we explore the intersection of health and culture in the workplace, our everyday lives, and patient care. I'm Beth Blue, Communication Support for Aboriginal Health. This week, Chris, Vanessa, and Sheila discuss the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and the resulting calls to action related to health. So really thrilled to return to season two of Interior Voices, a podcast where we get to explore the intersections of health and wellness and Aboriginal health inclusion. So thrilled to be here with Vanessa, Chris, Sheila, and Beth, kick off 2020 with some really exciting topics to share with our colleagues. So maybe since Chris is in a different territory, Chris should do the land acknowledgement today. Sure, I'd love to. I took my calling in from Saka territory where I live and work and have the beautiful opportunity to play a lot of the time as well. So grateful to the Saka people for being a land steward of this area. You know, knowing that the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's calls to action is our episode starting off with 2020, what a good place to start with, what is the Truth and Reconciliation Commission? Well, 2016 was the year that the final report came out, but after years of really information gathering and stories being shared from residential school survivors and family members of residential school survivors, those who did not survive residential schools, there was a lot of work and time dedication, passion, stories, sharing that went into what we now have as the final report of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. So that final report came out in different volumes as well as the 94 calls to action. So 2016 is kind of the big year because that's when everything was released in its final form and we kind of had the official release in June of that year of these documents that are now publicly available. Well, I think one of the things, too, that I've heard from communities and nations around truth and reconciliation and the report itself and the process was that there can't be reconciliation without truth-telling. And truth-telling really had to look at the legacy of residential schools, as it even says here at the beginning of the document, called to action, in order to redress the legacy of residential schools and advance that process of Canadian reconciliation. But I just have heard elders say, it can't be reconciliation without truth-telling. And that truth-telling was really integral to those stories that were shared and those lived and living experiences of survivors, as you mentioned, Chris. And that's certainly important, that truth-telling piece, as we adopted and incorporated those processes of truth and reconciliation. It was very vital that we understood the depth and the breadth of the harms and the trauma that occurred here in Canada. There's weight to this truth and reconciliation calls to action and I think the reason why I process my own self feeling this is I understand the weight and the gravity of the truth telling that happened and people sharing their lived and living experiences for us to even come to this call to action. So it's rooted in the people and it's rooted in lives. And so I think it's important for that acknowledgement is when we're reading these, these are livelihoods. 
and living people, and we need to carry and hold the weight of those in the gravity on how we unfold that within our work and within health authorities and within practice. And I think we can acknowledge that they're not easy to hear or to read, and they shouldn't be, and that they're not comfortable to hear and read because they shouldn't be. And I think it's okay to acknowledge that because in this space it is complicated and it isn't always that simple or easy. And so it's even even just reading through them, like you said, it's it's hard because you know they come from such a place of lived ex and living experience. But that's just also truth that's in this. And so like you said, we need to hold it in a way that's respectful of that. And just to kind of highlight the difference between the final report and the call to action. The final report, I think, really does speak to that truth element. And for me, it was just very powerful and quite difficult to read, but in the same, quite important to read. And so I think that to kind of see where the call to action comes from, it really is the volumes of the truth that are in that final report. And then the call to action gives that pebble or a little bit of that healing that you spoke to, Sheila. You know, what does the journey to reconciliation look like? And how can, we, how can we even just start? For people who are curious in terms of that final report and where to start, there is a summary report in a PDF format that we will link at the end of this episode, as well as a collaboration that took it upon themselves to read the summary report through a YouTube video project. And one thing actually that some colleagues at a previous role and I did was do a book club-esque style of reading the TRC because it's very hard to do it by yourself. So I would recommend also reaching out to people who you feel you can connect with through this work too and read the TRC together or, you know, host a little bit of a discussion book club if you're feeling like your journey as an ally can start with this and potentially the way to kind of listen others to the work that you're doing. And that's a great point, Chris. I have been fortunate to either participate or lead reading circles around the summary report from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. As I have witnessed, when people do engage with the content in the report, it's very painful, it's very shocking, and and there's a lot of distress that is experienced with the, the evidence and the facts that are contained within the report. One of the things that I really like that's really pointed out, the one line here as I'm looking at the summary since we're talking about it, is reconciliation is not an Aboriginal problem, it is a Canadian one. So just recognizing that reconciliation is really looking to shift the narrative about there being an Indian problem or an Aboriginal problem, it's just recognizing that this is something that's happened on these lands that many identify as Canada, and therefore it's a part of Canadian history and how does that link to the narrative that we're living today and how important is it for us to know if this is something that we didn't know of before and doing our work. And so in knowing all of those pieces and highlighting the impact and the powerful nature of calls to action, for today's episode, we're looking specifically to come to the actions that are for health, which are numbers 18 through to 24, and recognizing that in the spaces that we are in, sometimes we don't always have the time to understand the why. And we're hoping we are gonna today build a resource in which our colleagues can come in and at least in this space, hopefully have a deeper understanding of numbers 18 to 24 in helping facilitate the why. 
and being able to explore what that might mean for them and the work of health and start percolating and bringing those questions forward. So we were thinking because of the different ways that people can learn is that we're actually going to just read aloud each call to action that pertains to health and maybe just have a little bit of discussion about each of them in our own way as we also continue to reflect on how this guides and impacts our work. So maybe Chris can read number 18. So call to action 18, we call upon the federal, provincial, territorial, and Aboriginal governments to acknowledge that the current state of Aboriginal health in Canada is a direct result of previous Canadian government policies, including residential schools, and to recognize and implement the health care rights of Aboriginal people as identified in international law, constitutional law, and under the treaty. And that is definitely a powerful one right out of the gate. How do we unpack acknowledging the current state of Aboriginal health? I think it's a call to acknowledge the realities and the truth of current health status and, and not to continue to place blame on Aboriginal people for the status of their health. To recognize that this is a systemic and structural inequity. And so for me, it continues the call for truth. And I think, too, because that line is a direct result of previous Canadian government policies, that these were policies and laws and legislations that were put forward upon a people. So an example would be the Indian Act. I've heard it described as a very racist policy in the sense that it's based solely on the race of the people. I think the other piece is recognizing where that way of thinking of previous Canadian government policies came from. And there is a book that really speaks to that, and um, that language really is centered, and I know Eric Mitchell has talked about it a lot, those who have done the research around that, really comes from pieces like the Papal Bulls, which was even pre-Canada, and that looked to the Royal Proclamation. All of these feeder documents that are grounded very much in Canadian government policies. There is much literature out there. I am still at the very beginnings of that myself because it's important for us to know where these things came from and how they came to be in Canada to know how they've moved forward if we're going to reconcile that. did come out of the calls to action later in the action calling on the church to make redress of the ways that they've been called on is to identify how the doctrine of discovery not only impacted the way that Canada was settled and came to be seen as an empty land, but how the doctrine of discovery also continues to be alive and well in our policies and legislation today in ways that we're not even aware of because it's just become the way we do business. And so that can be also another link that we can provide because the, the church has been able to develop a, a documentary that is free for anyone to access. And it really lays out a very careful and deliberate accounting of how that doctrine of discovery worked and continues to work as a, an oppressive form of policy. And I know for me, just because this is what really struck me at the time of reading it, I was studying nutrition policy. And one thing that I remember so clearly in my mind reading about was the nutritional experimentation in residential schools. There's definitely information on that. And some of the information, I guess, about nutritional experimentation and essentially starvation and, and different things really hit me hard because that was essentially what I was studying at the time in school and just to not even have that on the radar of things that we learn about.
I guess when we're looking at this one, to kind of take that step back again and really look at the wording of this, is it's a really high-level call to action. You know, when we think of work and health and healthcare and healthcare systems, this call to action is really calling the federal, provincial, territorial, and Aboriginal governments to acknowledge that the current state of Aboriginal health in Canada is a direct result of previous Canadian government policy. So it's also about looking at those government policies. Looking at the policies and unpacking them a bit, yes. their origins and intent. And seeing what's relevant today and what's not relevant today. Also recognize that there's a direct cause and effect. There was these policies and there's an effect to the healthcare rights of Aboriginal peoples. And to that point, moving on to call to action number 19, which continues that kind of high level call but also then begins a little more of that journey of exploration. And so, number 19, we call upon the federal government in consultation with Aboriginal peoples to establish measurable goals to identify and close the gaps in health outcomes between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal communities, and to publish annual progress reports and assess long-term trends. Such efforts would focus on indicators such as infant mortality, maternal health, suicide, mental health, addictions, life expectancy, birth rates, infant and child health issues, chronic diseases, illness, and injury incidents, and the availability of appropriate health services. What really speaks to me in this one is in consultation with Aboriginal peoples. So not about them without them, rather with and alongside. I guess one thing also that stands out to me is just the indicators that are suggested are very typical population and public health indicators. And so to really just break down and understand the inequities in order to really and truly make progress on reducing and eliminating the inequities, I think it's just really calling that we're a, potentially a country and, and provinces or, or health authorities that rely on data to plan and, and develop our services. So if we can use this data to also plan how we're going to make progress on reducing inequities, then that's our call here. And I certainly appreciate the focus on such indicators. Speaking from someone who comes from the outreach field in an Aboriginal nonprofit, and certainly in outreach work, all of these indicators were present in terms of supporting Indigenous people navigating the various systems to access appropriate health services. And also when we think about evidence and facts, we know in Canada that the Indigenous population really is about 4% of the overall population, and yet in spaces like suicide, mental health, substance use, infant and child health issues, chronic diseases, all of those spaces, we know that Indigenous people are grossly overrepresented at a conservative number around 25%. So these are things that really, you know, when we think about those indicators, I welcome bring to light that gross disparity. Also, as you pointed to, Vanessa, that spirit of consultation, nothing for us without us. So going into number 20, in order to address the jurisdictional disputes concerning Aboriginal peoples who do not reside on reserves, we call upon the federal government to recognize, respect, and address the distinct health needs of the Métis, Inuit, and off-reserve Aboriginal peoples. As an urban Aboriginal person, this call to action is incredibly powerful. And I think also this really helps, again, tease apart that sense that we're all the same as Indigenous people. 
there is a distinction between us and what we're able to access because of those distinctions. And also that call upon the federal government to respect the diversity and distinctness between all Indigenous groups in Canada. This also makes me really think of Jordan's principle, very much so, because of the jurisdictional disputes. How people, like in Jordan's principles in that case, where essentially there was a child that was in the hospital while the province and the feds were disputing as to who was going to provide service and care and pay for it. Exactly. And ultimately, Jordan's principal came down on the side of, we'll sort that out, just get the care to the young person. And so we've now seen a larger rollout of Jordan's principal and, and really trying to remove those barriers when a young person's health is at risk. Because in that particular situation, Jordan, while that dispute was going on, he died. Yeah. The other thing that it really speaks to is reserves are colonial systems. They're reservations that were created by those Canadian policies that we're speaking of in the previous number 18. And so recognizing that not all Aboriginal peoples reside nor want to reside on a reserve, and more than 50% of any reserve population actually lives off reserve, whether that's an urban or rural setting. And as well, recognizing that Aboriginal peoples, of course, includes First Nations, Inuit, and Métis. So it's important to know that Aboriginal peoples is actually highlighted in our Constitution of Canada and actually has that definition, First Nations, Inuit, and Métis. And you've heard us using the term Indian in relation to, again, the colonial Canadian policy that is called the Indian Act and has a definition of who Indian is or is not. And so these are all legal terms, not us just being slanderous. <laughs> <laughs> or harmful, but yeah. really using the language that's there within these laws and within these systems so that we're becoming aware of them and how they're different. And I really appreciate that point, Vanessa, especially the point about the language use and so noting Aboriginal and Indian as language that I think a lot of our colleagues actually recognize that they're problematic word uses, but they are in legal frameworks. And so I think, again, that also goes back to that call to action around our policies and our institutions are still using harmful language. And that's part of our process. That's part of our journey to truth and reconciliation. And that transformation changes, recognizing, unpacking that, and then being good with change. And knowing your terminology and where it's rooted. Call to Action 21, we call on the federal government sustainable funding for existing and new Aboriginal healing centers to address the physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual harm caused by residential schools, and to ensure that the funding of healing centers in Nunavut and Northwest Territories is a priority. Makes me think of the Aboriginal Healing Foundation. The Missing Murdered Indigenous Women's Report also called on the reinstatement of the Aboriginal Healing Foundation. And the need for healing, you know, calling upon the federal government to provide that sustainable funding, that acknowledgement that that healing and that healing continuum needs to occur intergenerationally as well as with the survivors as well. And I think the resource piece here for me too, as much as this kind of talks about sustainable funding, for me it also is thinking about kind of time as a resource too, and then mm -hmm. acknowledging that there needs to be the time for that healing. And that accountability caused by the residential schools. I like the time comment. I think we do need to take time 
it took us time to get to this place, and it's going to take us time to go to the new place. I'm glad that you said that, because there isn't a quick fix, you know, and people sometimes just want, well, how do we fix it? Well, it's important that you sift through this information from that heart place and, you know, all the things that we've said already and just recognize that exactly what you said, the length of time it took us to get here and the length of time it's going to take for that reconciliation and healing with that commitment too. First of all, if we were to do a quick fix, we're not going to do it well. And secondly, we're not allowing what can transform by taking that time. Calls to action number 22. We call upon those who can affect change within the Canadian healthcare system to recognize the value of Aboriginal healing practices and use them in the treatment of Aboriginal patients in collaboration with Aboriginal healers and elders where requested by Aboriginal patients. This is a great place to elevate and celebrate the ways that certainly Interior Health has mobilized strongly in this area. And, uh, and when I think of that, I think of the Aboriginal patient navigators and also the Aboriginal health team and the establishment of Aboriginal health within population health. I would just echo that. I really think this is where the Aboriginal patient navigators, can they, they truly do exactly respond to this call to action in terms of supporting Aboriginal patients in hospitals or healthcare centers with meeting their needs where they're at and bringing elders or knowledge keepers in to meet them in spaces where that healing needs to happen. And, you know, I think at first it was a bit of an introducing that idea to the healthcare system. And now I think even as we build new spaces or, or renovate spaces, it becomes how do we ensure that these spaces support elders and knowledge keepers to be here? For example, if there's ceremonies that may need to take place, but how can we ensure that the physical spaces, the interior health environment, are there to support that? And some of those spaces are referred to as sacred spaces. And I know recently in the territory and merit area, they're calling it a cultural space. But there are these spaces, like you said, that are starting to get incorporated and thought of in the planning, not as an afterthought. So I love that they're saying those who can affect change, because that takes it right to the front line all the way to decision makers. You know, everyone working in the healthcare system is in some place of a position of privilege and power. And so just recognizing that as, you know, we're all involved in shaping how the healthcare system is because healthcare is just people, people care. So mm -hmm. I think that this one, I really love how that's worded because it, it hits no matter who and where you are. You do have some ability to affect change, whether it's patient to patient or whether it's support staff, whether it's leadership. I think we're just all in that position to take these on. And it's about recognizing the value rather than necessarily needing to know what the practice is or the cultural tradition is, but recognizing the value so that you can create processes and pathways to open doors for that to happen. The last thing I'll say here for myself is we call upon those who can affect change. That also to me means community and Aboriginal healers and elders. You know, those that are surrounding recipients of care who are accessing services to be able to use their voice in requesting that pathway. Okay, we call upon all levels of government to increase the number of Aboriginal professionals working in the healthcare field, ensure the retention of Aboriginal healthcare providers in Aboriginal communities, and provide cultural competency training for all healthcare professionals. 
what's really exciting about call to action number 23 is I believe in all three of those subpoints to this that we can elevate and celebrate some incredible actions taking place here in interior health. What comes to mind with number one, increase the number of Aboriginal professionals working in the healthcare field. And this is also relates to number two, ensure the retention of Aboriginal healthcare providers in Aboriginal communities, but also in Aboriginal health, is that Interior Health actually has implemented human resources plan where we're hopeful to increase our Aboriginal workforce up to 10% by 2025. Interior Health has this Aboriginal Human Resources Strategy and through implementing this we now have an Aboriginal Human Resources Employee Advisor as well as an Aboriginal Human Resources Recruiter. And then I also look at point three in there, provide cultural competency training for all healthcare professionals. And I think about our Aboriginal Cultural Safety Education Program that really had life breathed in it all the way back to 2015. And now we have this journey that you can listen to in a other podcast from our last season to learn more about Aboriginal cultural safety within interior health. And then we have call to action number 24. We call upon medical and nursing schools in Canada to require all students to take a course dealing with Aboriginal health issues, including the history and legacy of residential schools, the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, Treaties and Aboriginal Rights, and Indigenous teachings and practices. This will require skills-based training in intercultural competency, conflict resolution, human rights, and anti-racism. I like that this one included the U.S. Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples as also being important in terms of part of the history and part of the learning for healthcare providers and new to healthcare providers, as I mentioned, in this call of medical and nursing schools, including, I think, a course, but even just beyond that, including all of this strikes me in this is the including the history and legacy of residential schools especially when we're thinking about medical and nursing professionals my assumption when it comes to medical and nursing professionals is that they choose this field of work because they truly care about the well-being of people in their communities and in in their nation and i have noticed that there's a surprise and a shock that not everyone experiences health services as safe or accessible. And so when I think about including the history and legacy of residential schools, including that history and legacy, I think helps build that pathway about how institutions overall stand as spaces of severe trauma for certain populations. And I think if we can help our medical and nursing professionals understand or appreciate that health services are experienced differently, that can support them in integrating different ways of approach in their healthcare that will support pathways to trusting a system that hasn't historically been in favor of certain kinds of bodies. And I think with Aboriginal health issues, it's not framed from a, it's an Aboriginal issue, as we mentioned kind of at the beginning of, this isn't an Aboriginal issue, it's actually a colonization issue. And so framing Aboriginal health issues around the history and legacy of residential schools, I think, is a lot more powerful than saying Aboriginal health issues as an Aboriginal issue. And it really speaks to that continuum of care and that continuum of health care providers. So 
23.3 says provide training for all healthcare professionals, noting that there are some who have already done their education and have been in the healthcare field for a long time, and yet making sure that new and upcoming students, such as medical and nursing students, receive that education throughout their education, being mindful of the continuum of education where people might be at. And knowing that it only speaks to medical and nursing schools here, I think one thing in British Columbia that all the colleges have signed on to the Declaration of Cultural Safety and Humility is a really neat step on this journey because it's that commitment that, you know, not only medical schools, but also, you know, the pharmacy students and physiotherapists, occupational therapists. Social workers. Yeah, I think just really not limiting that scope of potentially medical and nursing schools, but also just beyond that to all healthcare professionals, and that that declaration is a really integral step in that commitment. When we're thinking about different spaces that are signing on to this journey to cultural humility and safety, I think about Canada's largest provider of employee assistance program, Morneau Chappelle, and how through working with our human resources people, our Aboriginal human resources, we were able to engage with Morneau Chappelle and ask them how they are on their journey. And that has resulted in a tremendous response where they're actively working to attend to these calls to action, knowing that they are a support service to many health authorities. You know, for me, it was important to do this episode, exploring the truth and reconciliation calls to action as they relate to health. As I've had it through experiences of being a knowledge coordinator with the organization and now as a practice lead in mental health and substance use, quite frequently I'm met with the why. And so for me, I recognize at that point that there's more work to be done in laying out in an accessible way for colleagues the why. And a a significant underpinning of the why is the Truth and Reconciliation's calls to action and that we are mandated by the Ministry of Health to implement these calls to action. And so... For me, doing this work was about trying to provide a resource for our colleagues where it was accessible in real time for them to engage. I think it kind of goes back to something Vanessa said, but an amazing gift that these 94 calls to action are to this nation we call Canada. I think just the amount of work and truth that went into getting us even to this position of 94 calls to action is such a privilege even to be able to be in a space where we can take steps on our journey towards reconciliation. I just read a quote a couple days ago and just the the absolute privilege of people living in Canada who may only be learning about racism and not experiencing on a daily basis. So I just think we have such a gift from so many truths and stories and lived and living experiences that it was really a privilege to even go through these again and come back to our why, I think, even as a team of people working into your health. Totally. And, you know, just knowing that everybody's at different places in their journey as to what this means for them and what that means for them in their work and in their practice and what that means for even healthcare policies and processes and all of those pieces. So right from the front line, right to those who are in decision making spaces, right? And so aside from that, I think the other part is recognizing that we did only read the health section and encouraging people, by all means, read the entire uh, calls to action as well as the summary. And if you're feeling you want more, there is the full report itself. So just recognizing that these are documents that can help guide us in our work 
and that we need to come from it knowing that it is hard work, but also our hard work. And I guess what I can say is in the time that I've been here in Interior Health, hearing even healthcare provider stories, everybody decided to be in their journey of deciding to be something in healthcare. The root for all the stories that I've come across, Aboriginal or non-Aboriginal, comes from a desire to help and to help others. I think whatever document it is that we're going to do, for me it holds an emotion and the responsibility towards humanity. And humanity includes Aboriginal people. And in 2020, this can't happen anymore. Just as the weight and the responsibility of the words that are held within this document and these few, we're only talking about the ones related to health. These calls to actions hit every intersectionality of a human being, and we're just talking about health. And so when we think of the why, I think sometimes it's often looking for a bigger why or some complex why, but in the end of the day, the why is our responsibility to human beings and their human rights. You need to read this with your heart, because that's how we're reading because we are talking about ourselves, we are talking about our babies, we are talking about our grandmothers and grandfathers and our aunts and uncles and our relatives, ourselves, our families, our communities, our nations. And when we encourage people to read this, that's where we're coming from. Just have that in mind. It's not just a document. Thank you for listening to Episode 1 of Season 2, Interior Voices. Visit our website at interiorhealth.ca slash interiorvoices for links to additional information and resources mentioned in today's podcast. If you have questions or comments about today's episode, you can email interiorvoices at interiorhealth.ca. We'd love to hear from you. And don't forget to subscribe to Interior Voices on iTunes. Hey, don't leave me alone in the woodland. <laughs> and there's our blooper for the end. Yeah, I was just thinking that too. <laughs> it's like crickets.